Welcome to the CEO Story, brought to you by KC Johan, founder of Together CFO, where every week we're interviewing the top CEOs in various industries, sharing their journey and extracting the top things that made them successful. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We have a fantastic episode for you today. We have the co-founder and CEO of Pedigo, who is Don D. Constanzo. Thank you so much, Don, for taking the time to join us. Can you tell us a little bit about this amazing electric bike company that you created? Well, first of all, I'd like to just say I'm really excited to be part of this. I love to share and inspire other entrepreneurs. When I was younger, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I looked to other folks to help inspire me. So my goal later in life is to help inspire other people to be entrepreneurs. So, you know, I, my background is, is pretty broad and diverse, but, um, you know, I, I've, I started out in business in, in a sales role and worked my way up to a corner office in a big company and then became an entrepreneur. And then I got kicked out of the corner office and it was the best thing ever happened to me. I wish it happened sooner. I hear that a lot. If it happened sooner, I'd have been an entrepreneur sooner. So share that journey with us. There's a lot to kind of unravel and so many successes along the way. But starting with sales, you know, this is a common theme that I hear time and time again is that a lot of successful people have this fundamental baseline of being able to sell. How, one, did you get into selling initially? Is that something that you really wanted to do or did you fall into it? And then how did you get good at it? Uh, well, I think you get good at it through practice. But um, when I was nine years old, I started selling seeds door to door. I found this ad in a magazine saying how to make a lot of money and you can sell seeds. So I sold you know, garden seeds door to door. And I found out a lot of people didn't like to garden. So then I sold light bulbs because of the, I decided that everybody needed a light bulb. So I would buy these packs of light bulbs for $10 for a case, I think for 10. I think actually I got 20 sets of light bulbs and I'd sell them door to door and I could double my money. And that taught a lot of things to me. I'd pay $10 for this carton of light bulbs. I'd go sell the door to door. And by the way, everybody, who wouldn't want to buy light bulbs from a nine-year-old fat boy? Because that's what I was. And, <laughs> and whenever I needed any money, I'd go grab these light bulbs out of the shelf, go out and sell a few and raise some money. And I'd, I'd always put that dollar away so I could afford to buy another round. That's pretty and, disciplined uh, as a child. Yeah, nine years old. Yeah, that's, that's kind of very um, forward thinking and self-sufficient, right? Most nine-year-olds right now are just going to mommy and daddy and saying, hey, can I buy this game or whatever they need? But to kind of get up and, and do that at such a young age is kind of special, I would say. So what made you kind of have that initiative and drive yourself? No idea. I wish I could tell you what drove me. I, I, I couldn't answer that. Just, it was just my natural ability. I like to, I guess I was a people pleaser and I thought selling something, I was doing them a favor. And I really believe when I sold light bulbs that I was helping them out because if they ran out of a, a light bulb, it'd be nice that they could pull one off the shelf and, and have light. And then when I was 11, I started installing phone systems in people's houses. Back then, you, you had to pay a dollar a month to get a phone extension from the phone company. But I found a place online in the back of the New York Times that sold phones. So I'd buy these phones for $9.95, and I'd resell them for $19.95, and I would charge another $10 to install them. Now, mind you, this is in the, in the, in the early 1970s when phones were very restricted, and I think it was illegal. 
I don't know. I think there's a statute of limitations, but uh, don't think of the phone company like that. There were some UCC regulations. So I evolved into selling all kinds of things. But when I was 18 years old, I, I graduated from high school and I was looking for a summer job and I didn't want a typical summer job. I'd done that. I'd been a receiving clerk. I, had been, I worked in a Firestone store busting tires. I worked in Montgomery Wards uh, selling tires and batteries, but I wanted to do something to make a lot of money. So I saw an ad said, make a thousand dollars a month and get a free car if you want to sell cars. So I went to the local Ford dealer and uh, they hired me on the spot and I went to work selling cars and they, they taught me three very important things in life. The first thing is, is the first thing you do is sell yourself. Nobody wants to do business with anybody who they don't like. So that's the first thing you do. The second thing you then, you then talk about the company you work for. In that case, I worked for a Ford dealer. I talked about what a great Ford dealership they were, how they had red carpet surface service and they'd been around for 10 years and on and on and on. And then the third thing was to sell the, the product, sell the car. So in my first month, I sold 21 cars oh, and they wow. gave me a brand new Ford Granada Gia demonstrator. And I went out and bought a, a whole bunch of clothes and suits and I thought I died and went to heaven. And then they decided they would send me to training class. And by the way, all the other salesmen hated me because I was this new kid and I, I, the best anybody had ever done was 10 or 11 cars. And I sold 21 in one month. With no experience, with no training or anything. Exactly. And, but I followed what they said. The guy taught me those three things. So then I went to training class and I watched all these VHS videotapes on how to sell cars and all that. And guess what? The next month I only sold nine cars. Down, yeah. <laughs> so I learned a very important lesson. From there I went on to school. I got my degree in marketing. And then I got a job at an automotive chemical company called Winds. Uh, I was there for less than a year. And one night, one afternoon on my way out, the president of the office, the president of the company called me in his office and said, Don, I've been watching you. He says, I'm very impressed. He says, what do you want to be here, here at company? I said, well, his name was uh, Mr. Borello. I said, well, Mr. Borello, I want your job. And um, when do you plan to retire? He was taken aback by that. He was, why do you ask? I said, because I want to take your place. When you're ready to retire, I want you to groom me take your job. And uh, he, he retired earlier. I think he got let go a year or so later, but it took me 20 years, but I finally did get that job. Um, and I, I set my, 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 you know, my goal in, in getting that corner office and becoming the CEO of that company. And it took me 20 years to get there, only to be knocked off the perch two years later when a larger industrial company acquired the company. And we were an entrepreneurial company. The, the, the other company was not. Doesn't make one right or wrong, just makes them different. So culture mindset is everything yeah. when you get merged or, or acquired, right? And I only wish it happened earlier because if it happened earlier, it kicked me out of my warm bed where I liked the corporate environment and I became an entrepreneur. So at that point you moved over to Dallas. Well, yeah. So I acquired a company like the company. I, that was an automotive chemical company. Uh, myself and a partner acquired a small firm that was much like the one I was used to running. And we, we, we grew that business. It was near bankruptcy. We acquired it. Um, and I you know, ran it for about six or seven years. And then I sold to my partner. And then I was 50 years old. And I wanted, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And uh, I got intrigued by electric bicycles. And in fact, I, I had already acquired a couple. I decided to open a retail store as an experimental ground to see what the market was like. I called it a laboratory. And I sold everything electric. I sold electric scooters. Now, mind you, this is back in 2007. So way before anybody thought electric anything meant anything. Yeah. Nobody had ever heard of Tesla. Nobody had ever heard of, of, of any of the things, Rivian or, or, or electric bikes or Elon Musk for that matter. 
So um, in one year, I, I sold a, an electric car called the Zen out of Canada, Z-E-N-N. They've since failed, but they had it, and they kind of had a, a lead acid type model. They were ahead of their time. And I sold scooters, skateboards, uh, anything electric, um, a sco- uh, uh, and electric bikes. And I quickly realized that electric bikes were what everybody wanted. All the other things were niche players. Electric scooters, very small market. Electric skateboards, even smaller. Electric scooters, nobody seemed to have any demand for them. But electric bikes, that was broad, broad, a broad market. Um, anybody who ever rode a bike in their life liked the idea of an electric bike. And I know you've got an electric bike, so you get it. But if, you've never, if you've never ridden an electric bike, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it. So that, that launched me into uh, starting Pedigo a year later because I was frustrated by the style and quality and service I was getting from the, at that time, the, the uh, electric bike companies that were providing products, of which there were only a handful. And then the fact that yours are all fully assembled here in the U.S. is also pretty fantastic. So, Well, you know, the, today it's a global supply chain. Uh, you know, how do you say where it's made? Um, you know, in the case of our, ba- our tires, our tires we buy from a German company. They're made in Malaysia, and then they're put on our bikes in Vietnam. Oh, wow. On the rims in Vietnam. So the rims and the tires come there with that. So where's that product made? I don't know. And who knows where the rubber comes from? I suspect the rubber that goes in the tire comes from Malaysia. That's probably where the factory is, but I don't even know that. The battery cells, same kind of story. You know, lithium batteries, where do they come from? Well, we buy Panasonic and Samsung cells. The Panasonic cells, they could come from Japan. They could from China. You don't know. It's wherever Panasonic decides to make them. And then the same thing with Samsung. Samsung cells probably come from Korea. Then they go in a, into a, to an assembler in Vietnam who puts it in a pack. Then they send it to us. So. It's, it's, it's totally, just like every product today, it's hard to say exactly where they're made. Got it. Fantastic. Well, it's really interesting how you've grown a company which was initially just a retail experiment into something that's so huge and employs so many local people as well. Um, can you just run us through what, what kind of inspired that, especially later in life when you'd already had an exit, you'd already then sold your own company to your co-founder and then this was something that just kind of seemed to be very different to what you'd previously done in terms of working for a bigger company or having a nice corner office this seemed to be kind of starting something from the ground up yourself uh, over a 12-year period and growing it in such a tremendous way so quickly well i think you hit the nail on the head and without even recognizing it so it was about passion that i had I really enjoyed the jobs I had before. I really liked them, but I didn't love them. I was kind of bored by them. Um, you know, when I was in my, my, my corner office role, I got to travel around the world, visit with distributors, nice people, go out to eat, fly first class. It was a, it was a really good lifestyle, but I never really got passionate about it. I just wasn't into automotive chemicals and things you pour in your car to make them go a little bit better. It just never had me excited. It's a great business. I enjoyed the business part of it. But as far as the product is concerned, never really got my, floated my boat. Um, that's entirely different in this category. Now I don't like what I do. I love what I do. And I think that is the key ingredient to success. If you really love what you do and you believe what you do, you're going to be naturally better at it than you're just doing it just to make money. And consequently, I'm far more successful than that. So I took an idea, a concept. A lot of people ask me if I invented the electric bike. Well, that's just absurd because the electric bike was invented in the early 1900s. I think there's a patent from 1904 where somebody had an electric bike. 
the concept of putting a motor on a bike is far from new. However, what, what I like to say is I perfected it. So I took an idea and a concept, saw that it had some good pieces to it, loved it myself, loved to ride them myself, began studying what everybody else is doing in the market. And it wasn't like it was work. It was like a hobby. It was like fun. And, and once I got to design my own, and I'm not a designer, I don't have any artistic skills, I don't have any design skills, but I knew what I wanted. So by tearing out pictures from magazines and catalogs from other bike companies, I was able to go to a designer and express what I wanted him to do. And I, what I wanted was a classic beach-style bike like I grew up on, like Schwinn had in the 60s and 70s, which I had. And that was part of what made me design Pedego. So the first few bikes that we made were really just retro style bikes from and I, I i practice that this day forward every time we come out with a new model we have 18 new models it's all inspired by other products that are out there that are you know that that have kind of done it but in my opinion necessarily haven't done it right well that's fantastic what i'm hearing is such a great passion and drive mixed with not necessarily having the skills yourself in all of the facets needed but then sourcing those skills around you and building a team around you to help get that foundation set around your initial vision and then go to market with that. Well, you hit a key thing there, having the right people too. That's, that's a critical part of the equation because uh, I think I remember an old saying, it's tough to soar like an eagle if you work with turkeys. So I, I try to get the turkeys out of my life and just find eagles. I love that. <laughs> tough to sound like an eagle when you're hanging around with turkeys. Wow. <laughs> That's, it's so true, though, isn't it? Is that, you know, I think uh, I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, and one of the things he says, and many other personal development and mindset people, is you are the average of the five people you spend most time around. And they're either dragging you up or they're dragging you down, right? So it's always been super important to me to surround myself with people that are smarter and sharper in many ways than me so that I can just learn and constantly keep improving because nobody's perfect right nobody's fully rounded and you never stop learning I think is is what I'm trying to say I agree with that and you know I I, I Tony Robbins has been an inspiration for me but even more before Tony Robbins there was Jim Rohn Jim Rohn Jim Rohn was to me he was probably the single most influential person in 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 creating who I became when I was young and embryonic uh, in my 20s, uh, I believed in everything. He'd say, make a list. If you don't have a list, you don't know where you're going. So I've always made lists. Um, I remember I made a list of 100 things I wanted. And, you know, it was uh, all the way from a pair of sunglasses all the way up to my own home. And I checked off everything on that list over a five-year period. And unfortunately, I lost the list, but I wish I had it. It was on a yellow tab paper, and I had 100 things on that list, and I checked them off, and there's nothing more rewarding than you're checking those things off my list. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about mindset, personal development, and kind of what it is today is a lot more of a, a hype and a marketing spiel, but the root cause of a lot of those principles um, are, are very true. And I'm the same, you know, I've done a lot of online gym run workshops and goal setting and mindset things and have a really good morning routine. You're just trying to get into good habits to perpetuate success. And I think, it's definitely helped me focus more and, you know, where you put your focus and attention is pretty much where it tends to grow the most, right? So if I could end with one question, and uh, I don't know quite the best way to phrase this, but if you could split between 
luck, skill, and drive, the importance factor of your success, how would you uh, rank those three and how would you weight it? Uh, well, I don't think about them in those terms. Um, I think about attitude and aptitude. And um, you can't teach either one of those things. Either people have a good attitude or they have a good aptitude. So I believe in working with smart people and I believe in working with people who have the right attitude. And if they don't have that core foundation, then nothing else really matters. All those other things that come along are developed skills. But an inherent skill is the right attitude. You know, back to the earlier question you asked me, how did I have this? I always had a great attitude. I had a great optimistic outlook in life. I, I just... I, um, I had an uncle who was a very successful business person, and I used to watch him. I used to watch the way he walked. I looked the way he talked and all that, and I learned a lot from him. He was a huge inspiration. He was an entrepreneur that had that. So I think it's important to find somebody in your life who you can you know, look up to and aspire to and say, I want to be like that person. But I also think it's important that you have to bigger, have a bigger mission. And since I've uh, been at Pedigo, my goal is to make other people entrepreneurs. So we have 129 Pedigo stores that are all independently owned and operated. And all those people, most of them have never been in business for themselves. And we've taught them everything from how to form an LLC to how, you know, how to, how, you know, how to negotiate a lease. We go through the process and teach them how to do that. And that has given me more reward than the monetary gain by getting all these people now that are successful entrepreneurs that I feel I played a, a role in helping them do that. Oh, that's fantastic. I love the way you contributed not only to the end user of the bikes, but then also developing individual business people and help kind of mentor and guide them as well. I think, uh, I think that's very uh, rewarding in many ways. It is, very much so. Great. Well, Dom, thank you so much for taking the time. You've shared some great nuggets of information with us. I'm sure the listeners will be very happy. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you if they wanted to reach out? Um, well, I hate to say this, but to send me an email, um, and I already get 500 emails a day, but <laughs> I used to say that fairly liberally, but um, I would say to send an email to Don at Pedego.com, and Pedego is P-E-D-E-G-O, just E's, no I's, so P-E-D-E-G-O. It's pedal, add a little bit of E, which is energy, and then you go, um, and I'm happy to respond. I, I respond to virtually every email I get. Fantastic, and we'll put the link just below here so people can... One, visit the website, and then two, shoot you an email if, if they choose to. But, Don, well, thank, thank you, you so for having me. Time. It's been a pleasure, and you're fantastic. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye.